This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. We've spoken many times on Cultivating Place about the ways in which our places are in fact beloved and cared for members of our families and characters themselves who figure prominently in our life journeys and growth. This is what land and place are to Dean Kuypers. Dean has studied and written about the field of environmental politics and the human-nature relationship for decades. His most recent book, The Deer Camp, is a memoir of both place and people, recounting how restoring a piece of land with his father and his brothers also restored their family bonds and abiding love. He joins us from his home in Los Angeles to share more about the importance of habitat for the health of people and places. Welcome, Dean. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I'm so happy to be here. I am very happy to have you here, and I love this idea of including the way you care for land in my understanding and vocabulary of what gardening means to me in my life. And I'd like to have you start off for us by reading uh, an introductory passage that's a little bit of a ways into the book, but kind of sets the tone for how you view nature and its place in your heart and life, Dean. Yes, I'd love to read this. Um, The setup here is that this is a moment when I was 15 years old, and my father, having come off the farm, did everything sort of the hard way, and we were building a new house, and he put me out in the woods uh, of Michigan at age 15 uh, with a chainsaw and a tractor, and told me to clear the land so that we could build our new house. And I was a very bookish person, and I had been reading deeply in religion and ecology, and this sparked all kinds of ideas for me out in the woods. At lunch, I would sit on a stump and think about the muck. The life in the moldy, slimy stumpage was rich and black. The bugs and fungus and salamanders there seemed loud. The pile stood in direct contrast to the sterile fields I walked all day, on the flower farm where I worked as my paying job. Everything in that gray dun soil on the farm had been killed, except for the crops. It was dead silent. Somehow, Dad and Old Nagel, the patriarch of the flower farm, both agreed that God wanted them to clear the land, to reduce its complexity, to banish the useless species as a way to make way for clean thoughts and deeds. I was finding the exact opposite. Working in the rotten slash pile of trees to be cleared, I thought it was perfectly obvious that nature favored moreness, not lessness. More species of tree and frog and bug and fungus, not less. More exchange or communication between them, not less. Everything in that slash heap was very explicit about its desire to live. All you had to do was grab onto a little dogwood tree with both hands and pull, and you would feel it tugging back. A place was richer or poorer because of the number of exchanges that went on there, all of which fired the imagination. I wasn't sure what God was or if it existed, but if all things were an extension of God, then its fullest expression was more, not less. 
I was starting to talk with the minister of the new church my dad had joined, Pastor Stolp, and I understood there was a tension in God between oneness and manyness. The oneness, God as a unity, I might never see. But God as manyness was right here before my eyes. Life and God and nature expressed themselves through difference and diversity. There had to be difference in order for two things to talk to each other. Two different people, for instance, or one tree talking to the other tree through the white threads of fungus that connect trees. And if there wasn't any communication between things, then there was no world. The world wasn't actually made of things. It was made of the communication between things. Beautiful. And this passage really brings up almost every major theme that you cover in your book, that you explore and question and celebrate and grieve over in the course of the story of your family and this land. And we will go into this and the muck the beautiful, life-giving muck of it (laughs) as we move along, Dean. But I want to go back a little bit so that listeners get a sense of how you became a plant-loving person kind of prior to this and where it has gone in your life to date. Sure, yeah. Well, I grew up in rural Michigan, sort of southwest of Kalamazoo. A, very, a farming area there. And both my parents had came off working farms in the Holland, Zealand area of western Michigan, Dutch uh, farmers. So the soil and animals and agricultural uh, things were right there in my life, right from the start. Um, my grandpa Kuypers had cattle and my mother's father, Grandpa Nienhuis, had he grew pickles for Heinz for quite a long time. Um, So everybody in the family did a little farm work there now and again. Not that much for us. I was the oldest grandchild, but a lot of the major farming was already done by the time I came along. Um, But in the area where I grew up, there were farms everywhere. One of my best friends who figures in the book, um, Matt Stevens, lived across on a 200-acre farm of vineyards and cherries and asparagus um, and you know, this, that's what was in our region there, and so that's what you did growing up. You were tying grapes, detasseling corn, um, all these terrible jobs. Uh, <laughs> my, and my, my first job at age 13, which was not unusual, um, I had a full-time summer job at 13, uh, was working on a big, a really big uh, gladiola farm, Dutch gladiola farm, uh, weeding, setting irrigation pipe and you know, you know, watering systems and driving trucks, and I had a farm license, and, you know, sort of quasi-adult life started then. Uh, My father was one of six brothers. Uh, They were all hugely into hunting and fishing. That was their life. And so that became, for me and my two brothers, that became our life. The first thing my father did for me growing up is at three years old, he built me a fishing boat. He was in the Air Force and had been a carpenter there, and he built a wooden two-seater dinghy that we painted forest green so we could hide it uh, along lakes and streams that we wanted to fish, and that was for he and I to go trout fishing. My understanding always was that hunting and fishing wasn't that much different than the farm, except that you know we, we treasured the meat 
of a fish or, or a deer more than we did with stuff that came off the farm. It seemed more wild and more pure, but it was a kind of agricultural feeling. The better you knew that piece of land or that stretch of water, the more food it would produce. And so your whole focus as a kid and mine and my brothers and my dad and all of his brothers and all my cousins, it was habitat. Like that was, we were obsessed with habitat. And if you wanted to be part of the conversation in the Kuipers family, you had to know about habitat. You had to know, was it a good acorn year? Were there a lot of June berries? What's the geography like on that piece of land? How long has it been since a farmer's been on there? Is that, you know, did he mow the hay fields this year? Did you notice when you rode by on your bike? We would get these questions routinely um, because that's where the critters were. So um, habitat is where it's at. And um, hey, that's a good t-shirt. Habitat is where it's at. <laughs> and uh, it rhymes. <laughs> hadn't thought of that one. Dr. Seuss uh, would be so proud, Dean. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, he figured heavily in our life uh, as well, but probably everyone's life. But the problems in our, our family, which we'll go into a little later, drove me into books. And because we grew up with this obsession over ha- – and I can't overstate it too much. I mean if you were at a family reunion with my the Kuipers family, you would start to question after a half an hour, do these people ever talk about anything else? Right, right. Um, but it drove me into books. Um, so early in life, especially by the time I was in college, but earlier, I was reading a lot of religion because my family – my dad had joined the church. And I was reading a lot of Paul Shepard. Uh, books like The Tender Carnivore and The Sacred Game, Aldo Leopold, of course, with the Sand County Almanac. Um, and one that really stuck with me early on that changed the, so much about the way I think um, was Gregory Bateson. And uh, not too many people probably know who he is uh, who are listening, but uh, he was married to Margaret Mead, the famous anthropologist, and did a lot of that work with her. Uh, in the South Pacific, he was a cyberneticist, early computer guy, and also an ecologist. And he wrote in a book that I read early on, probably when I was in, like I was about 20 or something. He wrote, you decide that you want to get rid of the byproducts of human life, and that Lake Erie will be a good place to put them. You forget that the eco-mental system called Lake Erie is a part of your wider eco-mental system, and that if Lake Erie is driven insane, its insanity is incorporated in the larger system of your thought and experience. I had pulled that quote out and put it on a piece of paper, and it was stuck to my you know, board next to my college you know, writing desks and all that kind of stuff for years, because that told me that it wasn't just habitat out there. It was also my mental habitat. Like that's where my most of my mind existed. And I was always intensely uh, aware of the fact that most of my thoughts and the things that were part of my experience, the things that I was thinking about were coming from out there. They weren't inside my skull. They happened out there. And you have this really wonderful exploration of these multiple different threads throughout this book, which in at its most simplistic is you as a grown man trying to trace the arc of your family and its 
kind of dis-ease in its earliest forms and its relationship with a specific piece of land in Michigan and that as you become more integrated and healthy and in relationship with this piece of land and it grows and flourishes, you as men and you as a family grow and flourish. And so this concept that Bateson is is putting together, which is that our mental health as a human being and human cultures is directly related to the health of our natural environment. And the inside is the outside and the outside is the inside. So if one is broken, the other will reflect that brokenness. And you do this beautifully both as an individual boy growing into a man, as a brother, as a son, as a husband. And there is this very clear understanding for you and for your family and the way you you perceive the idea of hunting, that hunting is environmentalism, that hunting is caretaking for land. It is understanding animals and ecosystems at their very most complex. And you, you cite a wonderful quote as well by Leopold, who most people would know as you know, kind of the father of environmentalism in many ways and ecosystem care. But he was managing that land in Sand County Almanac as a place to hunt, as a hunter. And I think this really, really resonated with me because I was born and raised uh, in a family that hunted and fished and still do. Uh, we do a lot less hunting now, but for my 16th birthday, I was given a, you know, featherweight pump gun and I shared it with my sisters. But my family was full of women and your family was full of men. But the fishing and hunting was part of what my father handed to us as girls. And he's a wildlife biologist. And this idea of habitat and hunting as being related and caring was absolutely part of our ethic. And it's a conversation I don't have with many people at this point because it's been ostracized. It's been made taboo and pushed off into the side. And it has been made into something different by the cultural conversation of separateness. Yes. Yes, that's right. And frankly, the hunting um, community doesn't do itself a lot of favors by you know, put like the magazines have pictures of gigantic deer with big, you know, 22 point racks on the cover and that kind of thing, because that's not what it's about. That's never been what it's never. about. And, no. and on our, our piece of the piece of property that we have in Michigan, that is the deer camp of the title. It may, years may go by before, you know, between times that we actually take any animal there. Um, most of it is about growing stuff. We don't have any fences there and the animals can come and go, but we do lots of work just making a place that animals like to come and watching them and finding, you know, finding out their routines and their patterns and which ones come and go and enjoying all the wildlife. And that is for sure, um, you know, a dissonant kind of idea for those who don't hunt and I, to which I totally understand and less and less people do hunt. Probably, you know, because of trophy hunting and that kind of thing uh, turns off so many people and for good reason. 
But there is an, an absolute connection to watching uh, animals that you see year after year grow and to seeing them come and go freely. You know, it's the ultimate sort of free range creature and uh, to see grouse or deer or a, um, a woodcock uh, on your property and then to um, maybe take one or two. I hate when they say the word harvest because really what I do is I kill it. But um, uh, I, that is a word that people like to use these days to kind of soften things. But I'm not much for the softness. Um, but it's very, very satisfying to um, have that relationship with that animal. Yeah. And I would say that in my, in my family growing up, my, my mother was the gardener. My father was a hunter and a fisher. And he's still a very avid uh, fisherman and always fly, always – almost always catch and release. And the care for the water and the care for the land is definitely a part of it. And um, we mostly did upland birds or waterfowl. Not I never did any big game. But this poignancy that you include in this portrait of your family growing along with this piece of land, which is exactly why I said I would love to have this interview with you, is it made me homesick for that sense mm. of wholeness and family that was part of what it meant to all go out in the field and um, and care for the habitat and then experience, you know, the dove in season or the quail in season. And, um, and it, I don't know that I had thought about it in a long time as being directly related to what I consider to be the best of gardening with a big G. But at the more I read the book, I, the more I remembered that it absolutely was. Yeah, there's so much about it that is about the togetherness of the family, yeah. and um, especially in my giant, you know, Kuipers and my mother's side, the Nienheis families. You know, I remember distinctly so many instances uh, when my parents, who had lots of problems, weren't together for quite a long time in the middle of their marriage. And uh, but Dad took me out when I was 12, and we went quail hunting. It was my first ever hunt, and I got a few, and he got a few. And he wasn't living with us, but because we had some, um, we went back to the house and mom said, oh, okay, then Bruce, you stay for dinner and I'm going to cook them. And we had our beautiful quail dinner. And that was a moment when the family was all back together again because we had gone out hunting that day. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Dean Kuypers is the author of The Deer Camp, a memoir of a father, a family, and the land that healed them. We'll be right back after a break for more of our conversation with Dean. Stay with us. The oneness versus the manyness. Such a huge topic for the head, the heart, and the garden. In each season, in each year, this idea of the oneness and the manyness is its own animating unity of opposites. We are all one living body in this universe. Plants, mammals, fungi, stars. And yet, we are each ourselves. Our own little perfect snowflake patterns imprinting our tiny ephemeral stories onto the history of time. We're all individual gardeners, the many, 
And yet together, we are also one community of gardeners. The, cu the cumulative effect of whose efforts impacts the many every day in a multiplicity of ways. I know this to be so powerfully true with each and every conversation I'm privileged to be part of on the program. I know this to be true with each email and comment of support or response and affirmation. There are close to 20,000 of you listening to the podcast now, which grounds me and humbles me. Thank you. To know that these expansive conversations on what it means to be a gardener, on the responsibility and honor of cultivating our places, on what we as gardeners actually look like and care about, to know that all these things resonate with you all means the world to me. And not only your words, but your generous tax-deductible contributions as well. Donations directly support the people and resources needed to record, edit, engineer, produce, and air a quality program on a weekly and annual basis. And so thank you. If you'd like to become a monthly sustainer for Cultivating Place, go to the top right-hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com and hit the support button to find out more and to find out how. We simply could not grow the oneness of this Cultivating Place garden without the manyness of you. Now, back to our conversation with Dean Kuypers and the story of restoring a deer camp in Michigan and in turn, restoring he and his brother's bonds with their father. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now with Dean Kuypers and his story of how he and his brother's relationships with their father healed as they worked on restoring and cultivating habitat on a piece of Michigan land they call the Deer Camp. As we come back, Dean talks about the relationship between blood and dirt. We are compelled by blood to want to be with our family. My father was a very difficult person. Um, he had a lot of affairs and uh, drove my mom crazy. And at one point, um, she actually said, I can't take this anymore and went and checked herself into the hospital and had, you know, what I guess what we would now call the, a nervous breakdown. And even through all of that, through the difficult times we had with our dad, um, we wanted to be with him. We, you're, you're, you're just compelled by biology and, and blood to want to be together as this unit, as a, a our, you know, and our mother was just our rock and our, uh, always just held us together, me, me and my three brothers. And for a lot of the years, it was just the four of us. But we wanted dad back constantly. And um, I wrote this book because we got him back. And it took, you know, I was in my late, I was in my mid 40s when it finally happened. And it took a lot of work. And it was related to this piece of dirt. 
and everything in my life had been about um, working in the dirt, both from you know from simple things like building our house and working on these flower farms, and later writing as a journalist, writing about environmentalism. It always felt to me like it was about dirt, and um, th- that turned out to be the sort of substrate of our reconnection. And I had not anticipated that. Uh, I started to see that those two things were kind of running side by side through my life, that there's this life force of the family, the blood, and the dirt, which is the place where everything happened. Yeah. And from just a kind of macro view of it, they are what holds, you know, dirt is the blood of the planet and holds us together and has for eons, us meaning all life form. And blood is what holds us as living mammals and birds and fish. That's what pumps through us and gives us life. And it's one of the the beautiful and I'm I'm probably going to say that a thousand times, threads through this book is how it's just not always pretty. And it's not always pretty in gardening. It's not always pretty in sitting on a stump in the muck as a 15-year-old boy hating your father who just dropped you off there. It's not pretty when you are field dressing your deer and your son is like, this is not my favorite part with the guts and the blood everywhere, <laughs> but it is life. And and you mentioned earlier, like, I, I don't – I'm not in favor of the word harvest because that does not get to the reality of this relationship you're in. Like, this animal gave its life in order to give you life. And these plants are giving their life in order for that deer to have life or me to have life. If I choose not to eat meat, I'm going to be eating plants and they are living things also. So there is this real exchange and communication to get back to those themes that you you brought up in the early, um, the original reading that are so essential. And and we gloss over them all the time in the garden, on our dinner tables, in our families. Yeah. If this book is really about one thing, it's about nature as a communicative order. I keep coming back to that phrase over and over as I continue my work and my reading. It's about what it says to us and the messages and the the life uh, giving, you know, nutrients and um, and also just our mentation, just our regular thoughts flowing through nature into us as a part of nature and right through us and into the, the next thing. Um, I became absolutely fascinated with the role that this piece of property played in the restoration of the mental health of my family and how that happened because when it did happen, and I should probably stop and lay out the basics of the the story there, um, but when it did happen, it was so obvious that my brothers and I and even my father kind of turned and you know looked at that those fields and said, "Hmm, what in the world just happened here?" <laughs> uh, because it was very very dramatic. Yeah, lay it out for listeners. The, the, give us the kind of arc of the story in brief because – Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like 
I've said my father and my mother had a very difficult relationship that eventually did not work out. And we were happy for it not to work out because we, for a lot of the time, we really didn't want him around. He was conflicted and angry and uh, he wasn't a person who drank or was violent or threw punches or anything, but he was just kind of seething all the time and would disappear for periods of time with other women and then come back and be mad. And, you know, this, this just was not something that was going to work out in our lives in general. And it drove me into being, I think, an intellectual and deeply concerned about the environment and wanting to understand everything I could about that. My brother, Brett, became a sort of mechanical genius, um, big hunter, fisherman, motorcycle guy, guitar player. And my brother, Joe, took it the hardest he was the youngest and really needed his dad around at times when he wasn't and for a whole variety of reasons fell into alcoholism at a very young age, started drinking at 14. By the time he was 16, was a full-blown alcoholic and you know, drinking like a fifth of vodka a day that he would hide in his locker, he told me, at the little rural it's a classy school that we all went to. And by the time uh, we were all adults, by the time Joe turned 18, Brett and I were older, um, we all scattered. And my mom finally divorced our dad. Um, the next year, he called me up. I was living in New York City and said, hey, Kimosabe, which is how he always greeted us. Um, I just got this new deer camp, you know, this new private hunting property just for you guys. We can all go there. And uh, hope that you're going to come this fall, um, which was totally shocking because at that <laughs> point in my life, I would telling people uh, that my dad was dead. So it, it makes me feel so absolutely heartbroken now as a father. It just makes me want to tear my teeth out. But that's where I had gotten with it. I just needed to be separate from him. I needed to make space for to be in my own life. And... Uh, I said, well, okay, that's great, but I'm not going to come to your deer camp. And um, and that was it. My brother Joe did go, had a nice time there for a few hours and um, and left. But we really did not engage that much in his big dream of the deer camp. And the following year, my brother was in a rehab and he got out for a weekend pass. So we went up there uh, reluctantly. I saw it for the first time. And, you know, speaking of the not pretty, it was gorgeous. It's a 95-acre chunk of land surrounded by 120 acres of federal land in the lower peninsula, about halfway up the state on the west side, of just north of Muskegon, and about 20 miles inland from Lake Michigan. And it was swampy, and it was remote, and there was nobody there but hunting properties and farmers. And it was fantastic, but it was also damaged. Um, like Aldo Leopold's place, which is kind of an analogous place straight across on the same latitude. It had been big trees and it had been farmed. And then because it had been big trees for so long, it had very little humus and it was quickly exhausted and abandoned. So it was kind of a sand farm. And uh, it needed a lot of work, but it did have a bunch of deer on it. So I understood why they, he had gotten it. Um, but we went about 15 years of not really participating at the place. We would go there, my brothers especially since they live in Michigan, would go there 
every other year or something and spend a day or something. But we just did not participate there um, until finally my father agreed to let um, my brother Brett direct us in a habitat restoration project to try to make it better for upland birds. And it was a big fight and my dad was against it and he didn't want to change anything and he didn't trust us. And when finally, after years of butting heads with him, we quit. Then he called up Brett and he said, okay, just do whatever you're going to do. And that meant taking down a pine plantation that had been there. And he was despondent afterwards. But the next spring, trees came up. And they had taken down this horrible old Scots pine plantation that had nothing under it. It was just bare dirt underneath. And out of that sand came boiling this riot of trees, maybe 20 different varieties of tree, you know, red oaks and white oaks and beeches and birches and um, all types of different pines and black cherries and aspens and everything just came pouring out of the sand. And we got a brand new dad out of the deal. He just greeted me when I got there and saw that for the first time with hugs and kisses and said, I love you which hadn't happened in 25 years and was a different human. And it came out. It was my brothers and I talked about it quite a bit afterwards. And I said, guys, it was those trees like that restored his faith, not only in the land and what was going on there, but us. And we then dug in and worked really hard together for a number of years growing um, fields of grass and uh, what eventually became a tall grass prairie on a five acre piece and a bunch of other stuff. And it just got better and better and better the more we had our hands in the dirt. So I'll fill in a couple of places where if you haven't read the book might not be completely clear, but in this this 15-year period, you and your brothers are growing in your environmental awareness, in your environmental depth of concern about loss of, you know, old-growth forests on the Pacific West Coast, about, you know, integrity of the rivers and chemical pollution, about all these things that are happening over these years, like the, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. And your middle brother, Brett, has been in a forestry management program, and he is learning and learning and learning about some of best practices for for care. And one of the great things that needs to happen is that you need to stop leaving this forest alone, and you need to disturb it, and you need to restart what is succession forest life cycle. And, yes. and you do this, and like that scene where you come – and you are worried that not, like that the, the Scots pine forest went down and that the worst case scenario had happened and nothing had grown back because no one's told you about it. And you get there and it is this flush of life and your father hugging you, which was odd in and of itself to get to that point in the story where you're very – reserved and conflicted and unhappy dad hugs you and says he loves you was was really powerful. And it's all step and sort of shoulder to shoulder with this land being disturbed, hitting rock bottom and starting to regrow. And so frustrating 
through that whole period from the moment I saw it, which was in 1990, to the moment when those trees came up, which is 2004, the land is calling the whole time. That is the, the minute we saw it, because we had been so obsessed with habitat our whole lives, we walked in there like rangers, like going, oh, okay, those trees have to go. This is probably no good. We can use some more berry bushes over here. Like, oh, look at the June berries. They're not that good this year. But you're just doing it silently, automatically in your head. And it was a place that needed was, – was beautiful and remote and was wilderness, but it is wilderness that had been damaged. And um, we were so aware of that the whole time. And so we had like a broken piece of land and a broken dad. And – we didn't know those things would fix each other, but we certainly felt compelled to fix the whole time. We were, we were like, whatever we can do as human beings, we're desperate to do it. We just wanted to get our hands in that soil, and we weren't allowed. It brought out all the worst in everyone, <laughs> in the whole family. Uh, my mom was kind of on the sidelines standing you know, by saying, wow, I r- really wish you guys could get something together with your father. And we were all like screaming at each other like, don't talk to us. We're in the middle of a fight. Right <laughs> it was going on for years and years. Right. Uh, but that mental health element to it was why I had to write this book. Because that moment happened, my brother said, wow, whew, like things sure got better with dad. And I said, because of all my reading in ecology, the first thing I said was, guys, it was those trees. And they both kind of stood back and said, ah, yeah, that's when things started to get really good. And even my dad said, well, something happened because I feel really good about those trees. And I had at that moment, I thought, okay, this is something that eventually, you know, I'm going to have to write about because as I like the way you put it, the gardening with a big G, some input, some way that we helped to manage this piece of property just had, just was like electricity, just had this giant impact over our entire family. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Dean Kuypers is the author of The Deer Camp, a memoir of a father, a family, and the land that healed them. We'll be right back for more of our conversation with Dean after the break. Stay with us. It's Jennifer. So this week, I'm thinking out loud about nature as a communicative order. Dean states it outright in his work, and his life lessons observed over a wide range of time and places. Nature is a communicative order. We talked about it as well last week with Baylor Chapman in the way our plants communicate with us, their leaves, their colors, their scents, their stature in the course of a day or a season. They are always communicating their statuses to us. And I suppose we're communicating ours to them as well, if we care to notice. The grasses and the trees and the flowers, the birds and the bees, they too are communicating all the time, sending out sounds and signals, letting us know how they are, where they are, what they need and what they like. But are we listening? And if we are, What is the quality of our listening? 
because an undercurrent of perhaps every conversation we have here on Cultivating Place is the importance of paying attention, paying close attention, and then interpreting the information we gather from this attention. How are our listening skills? What do we hear? And what will our response be? Because once you hear the natural world communicating with you in the garden or on the trail, it's really not an option to stop hearing it. What do become your options are the next steps. How do you interpret this communication and how do you respond? Now, back to our conversation with Dean Kuypers, who's listening to and loving this piece of land he shares with us in the deer camp is a testament to what he hears and his loving response. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now with Dean Kuypers and the story of how he and his brother's relationships with their father healed as they worked on restoring and cultivating habitat on a piece of Michigan land. As we come back, Dean and I explore the ideas of eco-psychology and the parallel concepts of the mental health of humans being directly related to the health of our environments. Yeah, I had been reading quite a bit since my college days about what now we would call eco-psychology. It didn't really have a name mm-hmm. as so much until um, Theodore Rozak's great primer that came out, I believe, around 90, called um, Eco-Psychology, Restoring the Earth, Healing the Mind, that made the connection acute, you know, that it formalized it as this relationship that we had talked about, about Bateson, the mental health of of human beings depended on the mental health of the earth. And there were so many people involved with that, including Paul Shepard, who I read so much of, and um, a fellow who I read, I had this great book when I was younger called Enviro slash Mental. That was, and one of the essays I read out of there was by a guy named Harold Searles, a psychiatrist um, who treated schizophrenics. And he was another person who made the connection like, what this madness is going on inside of our heads is not all in our heads, it's in the environment. So I was always interested in this. And it seems to me that this was a, a story. The story of what happened to my family that allowed me to pull all these threads together and to, to as you said, to show that they were all kind of – they were all leading to a place that is a place that you and I and everyone else experiences all day long, that the, the material world around us, the earth and the, the dirt and the trees and probably even the buildings and the built environment and everything else is um, – having an effect on our mental health and we are less aware of it than we need to be. And it only takes a shift of perspective to see it, to suddenly just become aware of the fact that your thoughts, probably the vast overwhelming majority of them are coming in from out there somewhere. And the correlation between individual mental health 
then being extrapolated out into our cultural communal health is so staggering to me when i when i think about what is happening in our world on so many different fronts that feels insane to me and the way this goes hand in hand with the the state of how our environment and biotic community is valued or devalued, cared for or not cared for. It was a really powerful kind of existential connection for me that I had a sense of, I always have a sense of, but the articulation of it through the lens of this story of your family and this piece of land was, it clicked a lot of kind of synapses in my brain going, oh, oh, oh. Yes. And when you think about it at this level, Dean, and your wife, Lori Kranz, is a a previous guest on the program and a well-known gardener in the L.A. area, and gardening is a big uh, part of your life and caretaking for your joint sons together, the three of you, the three of them between the two of you. And you think about these bigger issues in our society – what what are your hopes? Where how do you measure success here, Dean? Yeah, um, well, our you know my family in Michigan. You used earlier the word uh, disease. We were sick. There was an inability to communicate with one another that was born of our disconnection from um, any specific place and from each other. And when we had a place. And a way to connect to um, this land that was regenerative rather than um, using it. You know, I, I often say, like, my dad had to learn how to grow a deer and not just shoot one. And that was that was the change that allowed our family to become healthy. And I, of course, I am absolutely set on making that point as clear as possible with the kids and to helping them experience that in every way. They love to go to the, to the deer camp. Uh, in fact, we're going there in a few days. And they love to – I think that they get it. When their feet touch the ground there, um, they understand that there's something powerful that happened there in the family. There's history there. There is a love that probably comes out of me that is palpable. And um, I always talk about it as, it as it coming up through your feet because I can't stand it when I get there. The first thing I have to do is I have to go walk. I, I put on my iris setters with the soft soles, which help so much, and I just go walk around all around the property. And I feel the, the intelligence of the place kind of come up through my feet and – Everybody comes. We all say, okay, we're here. We've put the bags down. Now, everybody outside, let's walk. Um, I, I need that connection to be something that the boys can feel and that they can take with them to the rest of the world. Because once you understand it in one place, you understand it everywhere. And that is a, that gives me some hope. Um, obviously, the damage that we're doing – through climate change and other, you know, species extinction and other giant issues that are going on right now is very concerning and uh, something that, as 
as you said, you know, sort of drives us all insane. But I think that there is sanity there in knowing that we're part of it and that we can we can turn it. And that turning it will be good for us as um, as we get more – I don't exactly know how to say that – as we get more settled in our minds and understand that we're part of this. And I think, you know, you you live in Los Angeles as part of your everyday world, not at the deer camp. We know – I live in suburbia – we know that not everybody has access to a 95-acre piece of land in Michigan that is beautiful and full of wildlife. And so this right. then, you know, as our world becomes more and more urbanized and less access for many people to any one piece of land, I, I kind of think back to your days in New York City where you craved and sought out even a small piece of green in New York City. And you sat in that park and you fought for it to stay open all night long because you you instinctively knew that without having a connection to green somewhere, you 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 were less sane, you were less you, you felt less well and you were less of a person, a whole healthy person. And so, you know, as you look at this urbanization of our world and people's lack of access, do you see a greater burden being on all of us to protect public land, to maintain wild spaces? What do you say to people who have access to a windowsill and a public park, not a deer camp? Right. Yeah, that's really important. Um, and Lori, my wife and I talk about this with people all the time. Like, grow what you can. Um, if you're the reason we named her, you know, the book that we did together called "A Garden Can Be Anywhere," um, is that a garden can be anywhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it can be. Uh, if you have a, a a window, you know, if you have a, a windowsill with a where you can put two tomato plants, um, grow them because that makes all the difference. If you the, if you care about that tomato plant and you think about it at all, it's there. It's in your head. That means it's there kind of all the time. And it's you're, you may not be thinking about it 24-7, but somewhere in your mind you are aware of it 24-7 and what's happening with it and does it need water and how big is the tomato now and is that a tomato worm. And all those issues that go on with that plant are now part of you. And that can be – on a small scale, as you said, I used to sit out in Tompkins Square Park, which is two square blocks of um, the Lower East Side in New York City, and um, sit there during the cool of the night and um, think about those elm trees and all the things that had happened there and the pigeons and the, you know, the seagulls and the rats and everything else that lived there and was making a life there. And it can be a place that's large or small because – um, as you as you said, like all of us don't have a, a, a chunk of, of wilderness somewhere out in Michigan or Montana or the Rocky Mountains or you know Brazil or something that is our place where we can go. Um, we have to kind of find it where it is right here in our lives every day. And that might be one tree. A lot of people have a tree that they love. Um, that they pass every day on the work or they sit at when they eat our lunch or they um, care about in some way. And just the idea of that um, gives me hope. I go for walks with the dogs early in the morning and there's a lady around the, the corner 
who's always outside at about five o'clock in the morning in the dark because she looks at a coyote that sleeps across the street um, in the neighbor's yard. And that gives me so much hope. I come around that corner every day and she says, oh, hello, I'm watching our little friend. And that's it right there. That's, that's the world for me is if you care about a creature or a tree or something going on in your neighborhood to that extent, then it's in you. And it is you. That tomato plant or that coyote that you watch or the thing that you're paying attention to is you. And that is helping to formulate your thoughts and to turning this from a culture that uses and discards to a culture that nurtures and grows. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today, Dean. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thanks for all that you do and for putting people's minds in a place where they think about gardens. Dean Kuypers is an environmental advocate and a cultivator of place and healthy habitats. He has studied and written about the field of environmental politics and the human nature relationship for decades. His most recent book, The Deer Camp, is a memoir of both place and people, recounting how restoring a piece of land with his family also restored their abiding love. Join us again next week when we dig into our second conversation with a writer about their plant-based memoir. Margaret Rinkle is a contributing writer at the New York Times, and she'll be joining us to speak about her memoir, Late Migrations, A Natural History of Love and Loss. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. And hey, over at cultivatingplace.com this week, make sure to check out photos of Dean, his family, and the deer camp that brought them back together and grew them towards wholeness and health. While you're there at the website, please consider making a tax-deductible donation, large or small, one time or as a monthly recurring show of support for this program you love and the message of which is that in cultivating our places, we grow a better world. Now that's work worth supporting. And to all of our generous donors and monthly sustaining supporters, thank you. Without you, we couldn't do this important work. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally at PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.